Hi there, you're listening to the Venture Builder Map podcast. My name is Andries DeVos. I'm the co-founder of Slash, a Singapore-based venture builder. Every week I come together with brilliant minds to talk about how venture building is changing the way startups are incubated and corporate innovation is evolving. Entrepreneurship is a toolkit. It's a toolkit for creating possibilities in a mess, in ambiguity. Entrepreneurs come to the fore when there is a total mess, when there are cracks in the society and they fill the cracks and they fix things. And that's exactly what we need right now. That's the spirit. That's the just fucking do it spirit, the JFDI spirit. The exciting thing about accelerators, venture studios for the future is that now we don't have to be in the same place and we don't require very much money to do it either. We continue our insightful conversation with Hugh Mason, the co-founder and CEO of JFDI, a Singapore-based accelerator that has built over 70 startups since 2012. In this episode, we will cover the problems of the VC market, current trends, methodologies of running an accelerator, and much more. Stay tuned. If you sketched out the business plan for a venture studio, what would it look like? You have already mentioned that it would be more narrow-focused and it would give access to the first customers. What other characteristics would be part of that model? What would be in your recipe book? Well, if I give a, an example, here in Singapore, several years ago, I met a wonderful guy who only invests, he's a, he's a games developer, and all he does is casual games, you know, those little kind of dinky little puzzly things. And the prime market for those in the West anyway, is, is housewives at home who are bored at home because the kids haven't come home from school or they finish that and they give themselves a treat like if they've done some washing or something they'll play a game as a kind of treat and they'll and through their set-top box on their tv or, or on or through their mobile phone or whatever they end up paying to play that game now this guy had totally understood that vertical he knew the psychology of, of his customers he knew when they play he knows how much they pay he had distribution channels to get to those people so when people came to him with potential casual game ideas, he was able to say, I will do this if you make these changes. Here's the terms of the deal, you know, take it or leave it. And then people would come in and he would act like a, a very much like a traditional publisher, to be honest. And I think in some ways, a venture studio could be something like that, where you're taking ideas that have come from outside and you're a specialist with access to distribution and finance. Another way, and that's actually, of course, the way that many of the feature film studios work. I mean, you know, they have independent film producers who will develop a, um, a, a slate of scripts, as they call it. And so maybe an independent producer will raise a couple of million dollars. They'll spend it on developing maybe six or eight film scripts. They'll, through their energy and contacts with agents, they'll connect those films to star talent, uh, directors and um, you know, leading actors. And then they'll go to a studio and say, I've got this package. I've got a great script with a great actor that's prepared to do it and a director's prepared to do it. Will you take this on? We'll share the back end of the, you know, the rev of the value that's created. And in return, you put up the capital and you organize the distribution. So you could go with that. Another model would be to do what the film studios also do, which is to say, because we know the market, because we have the metrics, because we have the technical skills and resources in-house to make things, then why don't we come up with projects internally? And then we will hire a director to direct the film. In this case, let's hire a chief executive to you know, drive the business. And, and the interesting thing about that model is you've got to find, to drive the business is the critical thing. If you're going to go with that second model for Venture Studio, you need someone who's motivated enough to drive the business, but is not so entrepreneurial. They're just going to go and run, you know, they're going to get bored and go off and run their own thing. 
So what you need to find there is people who are entrepreneurially inclined and disciplined and prepared to work when they don't own the majority of the business at the early stage, but are potentially someone who could get it going from nothing to, to something. And of course, that's the rocket internet model, for example. What is it you think that is wrong with the VC market today that venture builders have understood and could potentially solve for? Venture capital has widely been recognized to have some serious challenges. You know, there is a, the Kaufman Foundation did a fascinating report a few years ago called uh, We Have Met the Enemy and It Is Us or something like that. And it revealed, you know, if you look at the statistics, the dirty secret of venture capital is that the vast majority of funds, I mean, I'm talking like 80% here, actually make a loss. You know, you put your money into a VC firm and you get, you get less back than you put in. There's a, a chunk of them, maybe another 10, 15% that will create, you know, they'll give you your money back with a little bit extra, maybe a bit more than you've got in the bank, but not much more. And then there's a tiny number of VC firms which make outsized returns. Because they have that brand name then, and everyone wants to be associated with that brand name, then, of course, they then attract the best companies moving forward. And that's how we get the Sequoias and the benchmark capitals and all the rest of it. So it's a curious thing when you actually look at the, the, the psychology of all of this, and there has been some great analysis done on, on portfolio construction in VC firms. If, if you do the equivalent of a tracker fund for public businesses, in other words, if you just sort of randomly invested in like a thousand startups, right, you can show that the results would be remarkably similar to what most VCs achieve. There's this human need to believe that there is star talent out there that can kind of pick winners. And then, of course, there's the whole story about adding value and, you know, nurturing them, and all this, which some VCs do and the majority don't. So I think all of this is stuff that's, uh, you know, been well documented and well discussed elsewhere. What can venture studios bring to the mix? Well, I think there's an interesting point there, I and mean, I, I won't name the fund, but if I say it's an extremely large uh, Singaporean fund that everybody's heard of, right? <laughs> I was having a discussion with a very, very large fund, which makes, you know, tens of millions of dollars size investments and above. And they feel they are now cut out of the stages of startup growth when value is created. They feel that, yes, they can write very large checks, but by the time they come to the party, they're not making that greater return on their investments. You know, and it was fascinating you know, just recently when, when um, you know, TradeGecko, one of our very first investees, was bought by Intuit. There's aspects of the deal I can't talk about. But what I did think was really interesting was that the, the, the very early stage investors, the people who put money into JFDI, you know, we as JFDI, I forget, but I think the, the multiple we got on our initial investment was something like 100x right, on that one investment, 100 times back what we put in. The folk that from our investor pool who then invested you know, a couple of rounds later um, to stay in the pile, they made a good return. But it was absolutely nothing like 100x. I mean, it was, a, it, was a, it was a multiple of the amount they put in, but it wasn't 100 times. So when you draw that kind of curve, everyone's seen the kind of hockey stick curve of valuation growth in a startup. I mean, it really is true that if you can get in at the beginning and avoid getting screwed by the later investors in terms of dilution and you know, all the other um, uh, dilution stuff, if you can get in early with a reasonable deal with, on founders who've got some integrity and following investors who don't screen, then the returns are, are fantastic. And that means that for a later stage fund, like the large one I was just speaking about, the problem they've got is that by the time they come to the party, you know, the, you know, the band's already 
onto its last song, you know. So, so I think that what's happening is that, you know, that fund actually is, did tell me confidentially that they are setting up a venture studio internally. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether this is going to be the case. I mean, it's interesting that you, you know, I wonder whether we'll see corporate uh, venture funds doing something similar. Um, there are pros and cons of that. That's another discussion. But uh, I think the answer, the simple answer to your question is that venture studios allow people who've got access to money to get into deals with discipline and structure earlier than they would otherwise, and therefore to enjoy, enjoy more valuation and growth. The real thing they've got to hide if they're going to do that is their own egos. You know, being a VC does not mean you know anything about starting or growing businesses. It means you know a lot about raising money from LPs, and it means you know a lot about term sheets and all that sort of stuff. That's great. Need that skill set. But it's got nothing to do with building value in a company. It really hasn't, unless you've been a founder yourself. And, and for that reason, I think the, you know, the venture studio model, if it's allied to fund manager, perhaps the ideal structure would be something like uh, a venture studio with people in it who know how to create and grow value, coupled to, very closely coupled to, a fund which has got some kind of arm's length relationship with the folk who are doing the company building. Because like everybody, if you're, if you're the one that's doing the company building, you're going to believe that all your projects are brilliant, right? And they should all receive huge amounts of money. And you need to have a robust discussion with an investor. <laughs> um, so even if it's your own fund, my hunch is that probably the people making the final investment decision for rigor need to be separated from the actual building process. That's, that's my hunch. I see more and more corporates, innovation teams reaching out to us as well as well as to explore the possibility of creating a venture studio. These trends are indeed emerging and it's exciting. But at the same time, I would argue that the risk culture of those teams, as well as their background, may not be compatible with being entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs. If you take that line of thinking to the next level and imagine you see VC as a product with a roadmap, let's say V1, V2, V3, etc., what are the versions that we would have now that will that will and the version that will come in the future? What are the trends you see? One of the things I hear a lot here in Asia from limited partners and family offices that want to invest in VCs is that the idea of locking up your money for 10 years in a fund run by someone that you haven't worked with before, who then invests in businesses that have got nothing to do with your family's, you know, group of businesses, where your children don't get to learn from the experience of those companies growing you know that's if you're a brand name vc (laughs) and you're setting up a southeast asia office then maybe you'll get some lps to invest but it's a very tough call to keep asking people to invest in that there is a sort of matching function isn't there that vcs perform in the old days it used to also be performed by those angel groups you know 10 or 15 years ago the only way for startups to meet business angels was to go along to a sort of monthly cabaret where a bunch of guys would sort of sit having, you know, dinner and drinks and the startups would go up on stage and kind of lap dance for them. And then occasionally they'd write a check, you know, but it was basically a big social event for the, for the angels, partly. It was a learning experience for a lot of the angels. And, um, and I think VCs similarly act as a kind of magnet that draws together, you know, um, money and talent. And the question is, 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 is a fund the only way to do that? On the angel end of things, I think it's very interesting that we've seen um, things like the syndicates forming on angel list, you know, where you have an experienced investor that people believe in and trust who says, I found a great investment here. Who wants to come in with me? 
And because they've got a bunch of followers on AngelList, those people will all come around. And effectively, they'll set up a VC fund, but it's a VC fund just for one investment, you know. And, and, and the, the lead investor that runs that um, will take a carry on everyone's money and all the usual things that a VC would do. But everyone can see where the money is going. You make a decision right now. There it is. Go, you know. And you sort of think, well, do you actually need all of this structure of a fund? You know, is that, is that actually necessary to act as the magnet for talent to come to? If, you, if it really is about star talent, if that's what investors want to follow, then, then you can do that as an individual. You don't need to have this cumbersome structure of a fund. The other thing I think is really interesting is the way we're starting to see some private marketplaces emerging now. You know, here in Singapore, we've got a business from Estonia called Thunderbeam, which is a, um, a private exchange that accredited investors can join. And they can invest direct into early stage businesses. The challenge with it, I think, at the moment is that the, the, there's not so much market volume. There's not so much trading. So the, the investments are not that liquid. And that means that the, the transparency on pricing that you get from a public market isn't there yet. But as an idea, I think it's really interesting. And, you know, one of the things, for example, if I was launching JFDI all over again, I think now that we've got a brand name and now that everybody knows what an accelerator is, there is an argument for saying, well, maybe we should just put up a, an exchange, you know, traded fund that's sort of linked to JFDI on something like Thunderbeam and raise the money that way and then deploy it into a portfolio of startups. You know, maybe that's what we should do. Um, and then people, at least at least our RLPs investing in the accelerator could ha have a way of getting in and out. Um, we'd have to put much more energy into sort of the storytelling around the performance of the startups and and there would have to be someone doing the market making and things like that. But maybe that's all possible. Um, often in, in, in finance, particularly, it's a relatively conservative industry, isn't it? Um, there, are, there are different flavors of product that people come up with, but it's, it's rare that we get a brand new paradigm. And VCs are what they are. They date from the 1950s. You know, everyone's heard the story of the investment into Digital Equipment Corporation, all that sort of thing. Would you create VC funds in the same way today if you were inventing them from scratch? Probably not. In the same way that you probably wouldn't invent retail shops and shopping malls in the same way now that we can do e-commerce. So I, I, I'm watching this and I'm a spectator. I'm not a VC. Um, I'm, uh, uh, I'm an individual investor and I, I used to run an accelerator. Um, but I'm fascinated to see which direction this goes. So over the years, you've acquired so much know-how. Have you thought of codifying this somehow for other people wanting to run accelerators? Or do you think that there's not enough sort of added value there? When we finished running the active phase of JFDI and moved into sort of harvest mode, we uh, actually thought about running a sort of accelerator as a service. Um, and funny enough, there's a company that was actually pitching me exactly that the other day. Um, I was looking at setting up an impact-oriented accelerator working with a, um, a, a large corporate venture. Um, and I found that there's a business in, in Europe that's got a fantastic sort of software platform. It's got all, everything that you'd want to run an accelerator. They, they've coded into, uh, into a system. And I think there's two or three of those out there now. So the sort of nuts and bolts and the mechanics of running an accelerator is, is relatively well understood. The other thing I think that's happened since we ran JFDI is that some fantastic academics have done a great job to 
start documenting accelerators and identifying success factors. There's a great book by Mike Wright and Ishmael Jury called Accelerators, and it's, it's an analysis um, of what it takes to make an accelerator work. Um, there's a wonderful researcher uh, in the US called uh, 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 Susan Cohen, who's, who's done a great job in documenting um, what, uh, and Yale Hochberg also have done a great job in terms of documenting what goes on in accelerators and why they succeed and how we can measure their success and quantify it and so on. So I think that the know-how is sort of quite open source now. And the spirit of the accelerator movement has always been to kind of make that stuff open source. So I think if, if I were going to do it again, I would probably focus less on the kind of mechanics of running the accelerator. And I would focus more on achieving distribution for startups and achieving more liquidity for investors, something like that. What are some of the most interesting business models or models you've seen out there for venture building and accelerators? I think it's fascinating to see different riffs on the same kind of theme. If you look at something like Entrepreneur First, you know, that's been extremely successful in, in the London in particular. Um, Matt and Alice, who set it up, have created an amazing climate where very, very smart people from top universities and technical people come together. And it's basically a three-month team-forming business, you know, operation, followed by a conventional accelerator, as far as I can see. I can't see that there's anything magic about it other than the fantastic community that they've built around it. So I think that that whole area of how do you form teams is an interesting one. The second area that I find very interesting is I, I, I joined On Deck, which is a, a virtual accelerator. And while I was in the quarantine, I thought to myself, I'm really bored here. I, for anyone who doesn't know, I had COVID-19 and I was stuck in hospital. And I thought to myself, oh, I wonder what it's like to be in an accelerator. And you know, I've, I've got lots of friends in Europe and I built businesses there and I built businesses here in Asia, but I've never built a business in Silicon Valley myself. So I thought, wow, because of COVID-19, I can join this accelerator that's just gone virtual on deck. And it's, I'm doing it will cost a lot less than a flight to America. So, so why don't I do that? And actually it turned out to be absolutely fantastic. I think what on deck do brilliantly is to curate people. Going back to the point I made earlier about the quality of people coming into an accelerator, the thing that On Deck has done fantastically is to get amazing people together. The conversations I've had have been great. And I, to be honest, I would, I'm very happy to pay that and more um, just for the people I've met. So I think what's interesting now, now that we have a sort of a framework around how do you build startups, now that we've got some common mental models, now that we've got some shared language around it, It seems to me that the physicality of an accelerator um, is still important for team formation, but it's less important when you've got when you're trying to help companies and support their growth. You know, I'm not sure that you actually do need to be face to face with a mentor. I'm I'm mentoring a wonderful eye surgeon, for example, at the moment through on deck, who's left eye surgery and is setting up a really exciting new business. And I really look forward to our conversations as a mentor. I don't get paid a cent for it. I'm, I'm happy to give up the time because it's so stimulating to talk with someone intelligent, passionate. And, and it's great that we don't have to be together. We can, we can share business models. I can share, you know, articles and stuff I've collected on Evernote with her as and when that's useful for our conversation. Um, she shares stuff with me about eye surgery, which I find fascinating because my, my mum had cataracts in her eyes. A huge function of a, an accelerator or a venture builder is to create a community. You know, I, I wrote my master's thesis on what is an accelerator. This is back in 2011, 2012. It wasn't clear at that time, you know, what is an accelerator? 
And the, the, the thesis is called Guilds for Geeks. And the conclusion you know, I came up with is that uh, an accelerator is a bit like a medieval guild where you bring together masters and apprentices and the craft of entrepreneurship is handed from one generation to the next through on-the-job training. Now, until recently, that had to be done face-to-face, but I don't think it has to be done that way in the future. You, you can have a community of mind without having a community of place. So that's fantastic because it means that really talented people, wherever they are, can reach out and connect with other people. I'm, <clears throat> I'm working at the moment with um, a Swiss-based um, accelerator called Seed Stars, and also with GSMA, which is what the people might know is the Mobile Phone um, Operators Association. They run some fantastic programs across the very, very developing parts of, of, of Southeast Asia. So recently I've been mentoring teams in Papua New Guinea um, and in, uh, in Samoa, uh, where I have a distant family connection. The most interesting discussions there have been to meet really great people who are as smart as anyone listening to this call. They just haven't had the chance to travel and they haven't had the chance to connect. And there were two conversations I had which really inspired me. One was with a wonderful woman in, uh, I think it was Papua New Guinea. And she had an idea for slaughter as a service. Okay, So in Papua New Guinea, buying live chickens at the market is the way that you buy your meat and you cycle home with it or you walk home with your chicken and then you chop its head off and you cook it for the family and you eat it and it's fantastic fresh chicken right so she came up with an idea a bit like Deliveroo where you could use your mobile phone to order a chicken the chicken would be delivered and then you can slaughter it yourself right there in your own backyard right and then you get the great taste of freshly killed meat <laughs> so what I loved about that was, you know, it's a business model that we actually know how to do. We've, we've seen kind of ride sharing and everything else done, but it was applied in a culturally relevant context, you know, to a very, very real opportunity in Papua New Guinea. But later on in that same session of mentoring startups, there was a guy came to me with this ring. If you imagine a kind of ring about uh, the size of your head, a piece of string with shells threaded on it. He brought me a piece of traditional shell money, and you can still buy things around the Pacific Islands with shell money like this, right? And this dude who was carrying this shell money was pitching me a blockchain business. <laughs> and the thing that impressed me is it wasn't one of those bullshit blockchain businesses, you know, where, you, where it's all crypto um, faith in the future and, you know, whatever. it was a really solid idea. And I thought, isn't this amazing? Here's this guy who's grown up. His parents were actually using shell money. And now he's pitching me a distributed ledger technology business, which really makes sense. And he's been able, through the internet, to get access to all the same white papers and ideas and everything else. I thought that was so inspiring. Uh, I, I thought that was great. So for me, the most exciting thing about the future of venture studios and accelerators is the idea that wherever talent is, people will be able to connect, people will be able to form teams, people will be able to get inspired and get mentored. And I, I'm passionate about this because, you know, I honestly believe, especially in the mess that we're in with COVID-19, entrepreneurship is a toolkit. It's a toolkit for creating possibilities in a mess, in ambiguity. Entrepreneurs come to the fore when there is a total mess, when there are cracks in the society and they fill the cracks and they fix things. And that's exactly what we need right now. That's the spirit. That's the just fucking do it spirit, the JFDI spirit which caused Meng and I to set up an accelerator. So the reason why I'm still passionate about entrepreneurship and teaching it and mentoring in it, and I want to keep doing that for the rest of my life, is because I believe that it is entrepreneurship that fundamentally creates the future. And uh, so I think that the exciting thing about accelerators, venture studios for the future is that now we don't have to be in the same place and we don't require very much money to do it either. 
you can run an accelerator in Port Moresby, in Papua New Guinea, um, and make it a success. Thank you for listening. If you found this discussion valuable and don't want to miss any future episodes, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, search for the VBMAP Podcasts, and subscribe.